0: Hello, and welcome to our session on the transformational application of artificial intelligence in manufacturing. I'm Ryan Spur, and I'm our manufacturing strategy director and leader of our manufacturing practice at Connection. And I'm joined today by Jamal Khan, our chief innovation and growth officer and head of the Helix Center of Applied Artificial Intelligence. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. good today. to be here. You know, Jamal, you can't get uh, past any news cycle or any conversation in everyday life or certainly uh, when we talk about technology without talking about artificial intelligence. It's everywhere. Uh, It certainly is. Um, And to kick things off, I want to talk about a recent paper uh, that I was reading that was talking, that that focused on the larger economic impact of Mm -hmm. artificial intelligence across the macro economy and different industries. And one of the things that really struck me was this notion that when it comes to the manufacturing industry itself, the broad manufacturing industry, it stands to uh, have the largest financial impact, positive impact in the industry out of any industry Mm -hmm. in the economy. And I want to kind of start here because I think this talks to the upside or the opportunity ahead of us in terms of artificial intelligence and certainly in manufacturing and i want to get your sense do you you agree with this sentiment and if so what do you think is really contributing to the notion that manufacturers will stand to benefit so significantly from artificial intelligence
1: Yeah, i I think it's an interesting call out that manufacturing as an industry is likely to have the uh, the the most upside impact by applying artificial intelligence in in the different processes Um, though i would sort of venture in argue that maybe it's slightly early to, to make that, that call out, and for a whole broad set of reasons. We, we really, truly do not understand fully what the implications and applications of artificial intelligence are going to be. I think, uh, similar to how we often use the analogy electricity, right, so mm. when electricity was first um, um, distributed you know and, and, and made into a, a mass supply per se, it had a massive impact on a whole broad set of industries and also gave rise to a whole broad set of new industries so Though I do think that in large measure there seems to be a natural reflexive reaction because of the nature of the manufacturing process it 's repetitive uh, it 's easily automated in some respects, mm-hmm. so there 's almost this reflexive reaction that um, and I think in some measure there 's legitimate argument to be made. Uh, but I think it might be a little bit too early uh, to say what the, the net-net impact would be. Um, so that's, that's generally how, what I f- you know, feel about that that particular s- sentiment.
0: Yeah, and I think you bring up some good points. I mean, let's assume that it's going to take time to evolve. I mean, you and I talk about this all the time offline, where this notion of there are certain technologies that are feasible, and available today. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, you know, when you think about manufacturing, I think uh, one of the other things that makes manufacturing uh, such a a ripe and opportune place to apply artificial intelligence is just the the vast number of functions that Mm -hmm. we typically see in manufacturing. Mm -hmm. I mean, when we we look at the application of AI today in areas like finance and human resources and IT and cybersecurity, I mean, there's so many different organizations today Um, And each and every day, we're seeing new AI offerings being embedded into applications, Mm or or new AI solutions entering into those functions, right, Mm -hmm. and bringing value. Um, I think when we think about manufacturing, there's all these other Mm -hmm. uh, there's all these other functions as well, right. Mm -hmm. We think about research and development, Mm -hmm. right, and there's a large number of engineering organizations and different disciplines in engineering. Mm-hmm. And so there's different, the different applications and usages for AI in those spaces. Of course, the cornerstone of manufacturing is production, mm-hmm. right? And, right. Um, and I think, you know, there's so much opportunity in terms of how we ad- advance and, and improve and address challenges mm-hmm. and opportunities in production. And of course, manufacturers also oftentimes, depending on the sub-industry, have, uh, they have aftermarket, mm-hmm. parts production, spare, uh, parts production and of course services. Many Mm -hmm. organizations are creating value added um, uh, revenue driving services around their products Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think you know in that regard it makes sense Mm -hmm. as this technology evolves Mm -hmm. there is a great deal of opportunity. So Jamal there's um, there's obviously a lot of potential and upside uh, over the long term for mm-hmm. manufacturing and the application of AI in manufacturing. Let's talk a little bit about some of the broad challenges as organizations go on this long-term AI journey and so I think you know there's probably two ways that we could unpack this. The first is what are some of the unique challenges that manufacturers face versus other industries and then maybe let's spend a little bit of time talking about some of the the general AI challenges associated with uh, the effective implementation of AI—you know, things like bias and security and regulation. But let's start with manufacturing. Um, what, what do you view or what do you see as some of the, you know, obvious obstacles uh, to successful adoption?
1: Yes, yeah, so I, I think obvious examples as well as trying to look for unique. I, I have a hard time finding unique examples, and mm-hmm. I'll tell you why. I think the set of challenges that the manufacturing industry needs to contend with in large measure with respect to the application of artificial intelligence are very similar to challenges other organizations need to contend with. There's um, you know, just the overall skill workforce challenge mm-hmm. that sort of permeates and exists in any industry that's really trying to push the envelope on applied artificial intelligence. You've got data privacy concerns and security concerns. Uh, You're looking at the manufacturing process. You're looking maybe more closer to the edge uh, data and -hmm. and, and things of that sort, but generally speaking on the broader context, uh, data security and privacy uh, is a challenge. I think if there's one unique challenge, I would say there's an integration challenge. And I think that's in large measure a function of the diversity of the ecosystem in terms of industrial control systems that exist in manufacturing that is very diverse. Now, coming back from an enterprise organization, the classic IT realm, I, what I found fascinating was, again, this diversity of systems that exist in manufacturing. And, and I'd love to double-click on that at some point. Um, you also have uh, challenges that are around uh, ethics and biases, right? So what are some of those bias and ethical uh, challenges or issues that one needs to contend with, again, in the application uh, of AI. Um, perhaps another more sort of unique challenge, again, I don't want to say it's, it's entirely al- aligned with manufacturing, mm-hmm. is supply chain optimization. Because yep. supply chain is such a critically important aspect of manufacturing processes and, and highly efficient manufacturing processes. So, leveraging artificial intelligence, I would consider more as an opportunity right. uh, to improve upon supply chain. But within the broader context of manufacturing as an industry, my biggest concern is around job displacement and what that represents. Uh, you and I have talked about mm-hmm. looking at sort of the index on, on mm-hmm. productivity enhancement and, and job displacement or job index. And we've, since the 40s, seen more or less uh, uh, an aligned progression. As productivity goes up, you kind of see jobs go up. But around the 90s, that, there was a divergence. Mm-hmm. Productivity in manufacturing kept going up but jobs more or less flatlined, And that's a function of automation in manufacturing. Uh, a lot of people attribute that to offshoring. Yes, offshoring yeah. had a little bit to, to, to do with it as well, but in large measure, the job displacement in many of manufacturing within the US is in large measure driven by automation. And, and so that I think gets doubled up with artificial intelligence, because now in, a, in an environment or an ecosystem uh, that learns, that can do more human-based systems. It's not just repetitive tasks that are automated. Yep. It's a learning system. Mm-hmm. You have the ability to move up the food chain from a manufacturing process. Mm-hmm. And so my, my biggest concern is the, the societal impact of job displacement in manufacturing. Now, it's not gonna happen overnight. There are gonna be lots of lumps and challenges in how that happens. Uh, but that, for me, is, is an in, insidiously unique challenge manufacturing is yeah. going to need to contend with.
0: Yeah it'll, it'll be really interesting to see how this unfolds uh, over the next decade. I mean you know conversely we look at the, the other challenges that manufacturers face right and so I think um, if you're a leader uh, operating a manufacturing organization and you look at statistics from say like the National Association of Manufacturers you know 2.1 million jobs unfilled over the next decade. Um, at any given month, you know, there's anywhere from five to six hundred thousand unfilled.
1: So, so what do you think happens? If you've got 2.1 million jobs that are unfilled, yeah. there's a pressure for that labor force. Yes. Where do you think the incentive for manufacturing is going to be?
0: Absolutely. It's, it, this is, and I think this is what we're going to see, right? I think the question is, if, if, if we're never able to fill those positions, there's a pressure like never before to drive to technology, That's and whether exactly. this is whether this is connecting and, and orchestrating data across the data plane and, and, and optimizing, you know, non-value-added tasks, mm-hmm. um, whether it's driving automation, which we've been on this, as you put pointed out, this long journey this of. Three decades um, of The application of ever-increasing and effective artificial intelligence and the, sort of the different applications, which we can get into in a few minutes. Um, and then, you know, offline, you brought up robotics, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, and ro- robots have been around forever, but we're starting to see a different breed of, of robots, robotics. Right. And so, you know, you I always talk about the, co- the the convergence of technology, right the things that sort of the tools and the evolution of AI, and then you know you, you combine uh, the evolution of even robotics and this could this could i mean ease. imagine
1: imagine companies like Boston Dynamics and right. what they 're doing and, and, and think for just a second when that breed of robots becomes aligned. It through a high-quality deliverable around manufacturing, sure. you're looking at a whole different equation yeah. around job displacement, workplace uh, workplace displacement.
0: Yeah, and it, it may not. You know, we think we think about robots today. We think about uh, robots to move uh, and pick parts. We think mm-hmm. about cobots that are loading mm-hmm. lines in mm-hmm. association with uh, operators, technicians, and engineers that are sort of overseeing all this automated
1: retrieval, right? Automated right. Storage yeah, systems, and so
0: right. you know, you start seeing AMRs right. and other solutions coming into play. And these sorts of jobs no longer become necessary, right? Um, Now, if you're not able to fill those positions, Mm. you know, this is a perfectly good solution. But I I agree with you. I think, you know, over the long-term trajectory, this is going to be a challenge that Mm. manufacturers face with. Both how do we deal with the fallout or the change in roles and skill sets necessary in an organization.
1: So, you know, a question that's often asked is why now? Yeah. So, I mean, any thoughts on that? And, and I mean, I'll certainly fill in, but I'd love to get your thoughts. Why now?
0: Well, I think part of it is the labor, the mm-hmm. workforce situation. I mean, when we th- when you look at organizations, I know for me, every time we talk to a customer, it's one of the first things I ask is, how is your workforce challenges in your organization? And mm-hmm. it's not just in, say, the factory or in the warehouse or in services. It's also in every other part, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, security and IT, every function and a manufacturer just like any other industry is 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 feeling pressure in terms of workforce, increased costs. Um, and if you can't fill these roles, you're faced with a challenge, right? right. You know, w- w- it, there's a point where you say if I can't get it's not just about getting the right talent mm-hmm. or the right skilled workers, but it's also can I just fill with bodies mm-hmm. to do the work? And if you can't do that, how do you operate?
1: So what you're saying is the economic imperative yes. is such a driver yes. for automation. And 100% agree. And yeah. and so if you if you look at the larger ecosystem of why now, that is one of the key drivers. And I think in some sense, in any capitalism or capitalistic system, that's going to be an underpinning around higher efficiencies, greater yep. productivity. Uh, but there, there are two or three other areas um, that have sort of converged. You know, One is the processing capability, mm-hmm. right? So when you're looking at AI workloads um, and having worked on AI now for almost two decades, I remember the scar tissue yeah. that I incurred In the early 2000s when we were trying to do simple things like very basic NLP and and leveraging CPU infrastructure and it would almost take us a day and a half to come back to to run against our R trained models against a certain set of text to try and get some contextual understanding and we would find that our models didn't fare too well and we would fine-tune those models and come back again in a day and a half because it would take so long for those models to run now you've got GPU infrastructure, mm-hmm. right? So that that sort of completely, radically changes the ability for us to take these workloads and drive them and get results at a much faster clip. Um, you also have got this massive democratization of tool sets and toolkits in AI. Again. 20 years ago, we didn't have any of these yeah. tool sets and toolkits. So you almost had to build everything from scratch. And this is important because this is
0: what you and I talked about. I mean, the, it's not just the pressure, the economic right. viability of pursuing AI, but it's also the barrier to entry. Right. Right? The playing it, field it, has become it was simpler, limited right? to people who had a, such a high standard for investment, and the ROI was such that you could go down that path. Uh, or you had the experts, but if you were just any organization in manufacturing, you might be prohibited from doing that. Right, right. What 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 besides the technology, right? GPUs and the compute power and the ability to do these things, what what else is making that possible? I mean like if I wanted to get started tomorrow uh, and you know take raw data for you know defect and quality data and, like you said, it, we, manufacturers have this rich ecosystem to choose from, but let 's say we start with something like quality and we have massive amounts of, of data. How would we so leverage I think, that? What would make that different today than five years from five years ago
1: I, I think what you 're just saying you, you, the answer is in what you 're saying data yeah. data is something mm-hmm. new, right so historically, if you look at the manufacturing system we 've discussed this. There's this rich ecosystem, whether it's, you know, PLCs, uh, whether they're HMIs, human-machine yep. interfaces. You've got distributed control systems, DCSs. You've got SCADA systems. Um, you've got, as I said, automated retrieval, automated storage systems. Yep. So that, in the manufacturing process, there are these siloed core technologies, uh, automated conveyor systems, yep. conveyor management systems. Uh, that all have the ability to create a lot of information mm-hmm. and data. Now, quite often we find in organizations when we go and do that assessment, and that's usually the first yep. place we start. Yep. We try and understand your manufacturing infrastructure and say, how is it configured? Because you'll be surprised how sometimes poorly configured or baseline configured it is. I don't yep. want to use the term poorly, it's baseline configured where there's a lot greater capability, but for a lot of broad set of reasons, that capability is not switched on. Um, and so. That's one of the first places we look. But data is one of those, um, you know, I would say the third or fourth key driver. There's this explosion of information. And, and now there's this almost cliche, which is data is a new currency, data is a yeah. new oil. How do I take data and drive more intelligent insights around my own decision making? So that is, that is a, a key aspect. And then there's the fourth or fifth, I've even lost count at this point, which is another driver. Are these uh, what we call AI algorithms, for a yeah. lack of a better term? These could be deep neural networks, these could be machine learning algorithms. There is an explosion of these algorithms that are out there. Uh, case in point, the whole chat GPT or the LLN ecosystem in large measure uh, is based upon this transformer neural network model, right? And the transformer neural networks were kind of designed in 2017. So in this compressed amount of time, in these three to five years, you see what was a theoretical paper written by the folks at Google became a practical application, which is now one of the fastest growing online applications in the world, right? Yep. Or in history. Yep. And, and, and so that level of innovation is happening in these fits and starts. There's no linear progression. Yeah. Yeah. And that is why I was wrong, because as an AI practitioner, I figured, you know, NLP- It's gonna take forever. Gonna, it, yeah. there's a linear progression, <clears throat> yeah. there's an underlying inertia that exists, and there's a technical challenge that exists that will, over the course, be linearly addressed. But we were wrong. Right. So we we thought, you know, NLP is an insidious challenge. It's going to take a while. You look at semantic languages, they're more difficult to contend with. You're trying to extract context. Uh, You're trying to uh, uh, extract what's called syntactical context, semantical context. These are not easy challenges. Well, then here comes this paper that says, look, let's tokenize every word, establish vector parameters, do some vector associations of different words. And now we'll give you the best probabilistic stack model on, on the next word. That's fundamentally what it's done. There's no cognitive context around LLMs and, and these systems. Um, but we never thought someone was doing that research. So I often ask that question, what additional research is going right now mm-hmm. that will pop up, that will really drive this further? So I, I'm no longer espoused to this notion it's a five-year cycle yep. or a 10-year cycle. We're going to see just this incredible innovation come in and surprise us and then push this forward. Um, so that is, again, the fourth or fifth element. You've got the algorithms, you've got the processing capability, you've got the democratization of tool sets, you've got an underlying economic um, drive, yep. uh, and then you've got this explosion of data. Mm-hmm. You combine those five elements, there's a perfect storm that converge.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, this idea that you could, you could pick up a foundational model, you could tap into your rich uh, data ecosystem at your organization and pick up a, a problem statement and say, how do I train, you know, I mean, this foundational model on top of my data, my company's data, right? Not public data, because I think, you know, that's one of the things that we, you know, everyone's sort of, well, I don't want to put my corporate data into a public instance of, say, ChatGPT or a generative Mm -hmm. AI solution. I mean, of course, there are other ways to solve this and tap into and protect your own data. But I think it's, it's amazing how quickly an organization could take a particular use case like image recognition, right? Mm-hmm. Which isn't new and it's mm-hmm. been around for a long time, mm-hmm. tap into a particular foundational model and, and get value.
1: Right, and, and what I'm always amazed with, I, I'm part of a lot of groups and, and, mm-hmm. and forums, um, and especially around you know, uh, AI algorithms and, and the modeling uh, infrastructure, the, the level of open source work that is ongoing. Yeah where everyone's sort of either working on an existing foundational model and fine-tuning it for a specific task, uh, and then making that available. Um, Just go to Hugging Face. You'll see tens if not hundreds of different models that are being leveraged for specific tasks. So there's this rich tapestry of those core foundational models. Now, how you apply them, how do you extract results? Mm -hmm. Um, That's why even at the Helix Center, we we say the Helix Center for Applied Artificial Intelligence. is the theoretical aspects of AI, that we can talk up a storm and get really jazzed and excited about, but then there's the, the reality of taking that and applying that for consistent results. That is a challenge. That needs to look at a whole broad set of considerations. How are you bringing some of those algorithms? How are you, how are you sort of uplifting your, uh, your infrastructure? How are you doing data orchestration? How are you doing your application replatforming? platforming How are you building a support infrastructure for us to establish effective and ongoing data pipes or machine learning ops, uh, MLOps? Um, so that is the challenge or the, the gap that exists between theoretical AI that gets us jazzed and excited and then the real-world application of AI to, to return meaningful business results.
0: Yeah, I, I love this, and I, I think you're spot on. And I think when you, when you look, you, you brought up this idea of the complexities of tapping into that data-rich ecosystem. And, the, you know, for anyone that's watching that's a manufacturer, they understand this, this domain. I mean, uh, manufacturers are born out of uh of growth over years and in decades and so uh organizations could be born out of mergers and acquisitions right Mm -hmm. and so you know when we think about some of the the challenges beyond ai itself it's how do we effectively tap into and orchestrate all that data and when we think about uh, manufacturing organizations something just like plants right this idea well hey we can innovate uh, apply a foundational model, we can bring in the latest technology which makes this possible at the edge, like the latest computing technology, um, we can deploy it and say one cell, we can go through this exercise as a proof of concept and, and to prove the ROI, but it's a very different challenge when you have to scale that across a manufacturing organization, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Because as you pointed out earlier, not, as, not only is there so much diversity and the types of technologies, whether it's industrial control systems, production lines, uh, sensors, building management, you know, right. on and on, so integrated communicate, you know, integrated supply chains, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. but then because of the way manufacturers are typically built over the years, whether it's organic, um, you know, building one line and five years later adding a new line and then, right. and then a new line, right, over years we have different aged technology and, and, and this, so it's this complex heterogeneous right environment. So,
1: so, so not even l- let's just put aside MA yeah. and and what the diversity that comes through M&A so yeah. I before for this particular th- uh, conversation I, I went back and, and wanted to refresh my brain in terms of all of those control systems and I and I've sort of laid them out and, and just just think about the diversity you've got you know classic PLCs, right program yeah. logic uh, uh, controllers You've got you know, Siemens, um, Cymatic, you've got a whole broad set of these. And, and those PLC systems, 30 years ago, they were obtuse they've become smarter, (coughs) they have digital frameworks, Mm -hmm. you can extract a lot of data and input and output, and then you can drive that through through a data plane. You're looking at DCS, your distributed control systems. Again, you know, whether it's Honeywell, a whole broad set of these companies that build these DCS. SCADA, you're now looking at more the power ecosystem or larger industrial scale, you're looking at SCADA systems, uh, human machine interfaces, Mm -hmm. uh, industrial robots, you know, FANUC uh, uh, or or, uh, KUKA, or a whole broad set of these industrial robots and what the data set that they generate. Yeah. Um, you're looking at conveyor systems. Uh, you're looking at pneumatic and hydraulic systems. Um, your know, ARAS, we've talked about that, and yeah. you know, automated re- yeah. retrieval, automated storage, yeah. uh, MESS systems, uh, which is manufacturing uh, execution. execution systems, yeah. uh, and so on so So forget the MA. even within in yeah. all, in a, in yeah. a ubiquitous organization, the, the parts at play are, are these rich elements, and again, one of the things that we do at Helix, if we're going through the process of trying to establish your maturity level or your ability to be ready for this AI journeys, we go try and map out these systems and say, where are they? How are they configured? Are they optimally configured for AI? And AI, at the end of the day, the precursor for that is data. Data, right? Uh, are they just doing a function in an obtuse fashion, and they're just great at that? Or have you switched on all the elements that give us the information that we need, that we can then drive into a mature data ecosystem? Because now, once you've got that in play, now you can start establishing some of those other elements. So, uh, it's it's it is fascinating yeah. how how diverse you know and and exciting this ecosystem is. Um, and, and we love to work in that.
0: Yeah, let, let's talk about some of the use cases or, or the workloads around a, uh, the application of, of AI and manufacturing, because I think this builds on kind of what you're talking about. I think, you know, um, it, it's one thing to pick one portion of the business process, one area of the business, uh, and to tap into that data. And that's perfectly fine. I mean, there are, as we talked about, right, there are AI use cases that are very bounded and can get results very quickly. Um, Then there are more complex applications. I mean, you brought up things like uh, uh, supply chain, Um, There are even things like predictive and prescriptive maintenance, where it's Mm -hmm. not just say, hey, monitoring a particular piece of equipment for what is the likelihood of failure and when, Mm -hmm. but how do I, you know, but how do I integrate that with other factors in the ecosystem? Mm -hmm. Like, what's the schedule for production over the next eight weeks? And what's customer demand look like? And what do shift schedules look like? And say, recommending what's the... It, it, not that it's the optimal time, but the least, in, you know, disruptive time yeah. to maintenance equipment, right? And, and, and so and then the that ant- requires multiple uh, elements of data yeah. in the environment to be successful.
1: Yeah, and the nth degree of so- sort of sophistication or, or or complexity is just the whole digital. Uh, twinning and, yes. and simulation of yes. manufacturing. I mean, that is, you know, now you're bringing in physics, yeah. you're bringing in actually applications that are applied in physics, and then you're combining data and AI to truly try and simulate a manufacturing process end-to-end and then fine tune it and find areas that you can improve yeah. before you actually f- impact that. But I, I think four years ago, when you and I were doing some of these talks, yeah. what was that one area that we were talking about? That, that, that overall encompassing transformation within industry? Industry 4.0, dot for right? in yeah, the journey we've the been on the for, we've for been on. over
0: a decade, <laughs> over, right? And, right? And the question is, you know, are people even partially along that journey in the basics of Industry yeah, 4.0? Yeah, it's
1: like that's, uh, I, you know, I think in some cases they are, in some yeah. cases they're not. But, but fundamentally, I think AI, artificial intelligence, in large measure is just an extension of yep. Industry 4.0, right? So Industry 4.0 is about, you know, bringing, digitizing your industry. That's fundamentally at the most basic level, you're digitizing your industry. Uh, and and yes, I think the, a lot of companies are partially on that journey mm-hmm. for a whole broad set of considerations, mm-hmm. but that same underlying challenge is a challenge that you have to contend with if you're going to be successful in artificial intelligence. So I, I in large measure believe that the AI journey for uh, manufacturing in, in large measure is driven by um, the digitization uh, journey that a company's on, the data journey that a company's on, uh, and in, in some ways, shape, or form is a, an extension of the industry 4.0 uh, transformation that we've been contending on. But you're absolutely right. The use cases are, are predictive, prescriptive, you've got supply chain optimization, you've got quality control uh, functions, and then robotics and automation. Um, so there's a broad set of those considerations, then there's hyper-personalization, right? So how can a manufacturing process now become personalized? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yes, there's, there's still a significant gap that exists, but here you are, or a certain set of your consumers are orienting around a specific product. You're getting that input through your e-commerce systems or your digital uh, advertising systems where there's a general sentiment. How does that impact and affect downstream manufacturing? Yep. I mean that that is a really uh, a
0: powerful mm-hmm. example of integrating across, across all that the, uh, rich data uh, ecosystem right Let, let's let's talk about a few of these because um you know it was interesting uh, when i was doing some research in terms of statistics in terms of adoption um one of you know and if you look at gartner gartner for those of you that don't know does uh you know has a, an assessment of use cases that combine uh, feasibility and the return in terms of value to an organization and you know one, one of the and of course in manufacturing this isn't entirely new because machine vision for example has been around forever right where we buy a very expensive say automated optical inspection machine it does one thing and one thing only right and it inspects product um, there are other applications of machine vision but this is one of those areas where when when you look at the data and you look at of manufacturers who have adopted AI, 60% of, a, of those that have adopted AI have adopted it first for that purpose of mm-hmm. quality control mm-hmm. and, and quality inspections, which makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's a more, more feasible, more mature technology. But when you, when you look at modern uh, camera vision, which mm-hmm. is going a little bit a little bit further, meaning we're opening up the aperture, what we can do with uh, image, recognition, image and video recognition, but this idea that we can touch a lot, uh, many more job functions, many more um, organizations. So it's not just quality control anymore, but it's workplace safety. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. It's being able to capture, uh, you know, many manufacturers, unfortunately, still receive a lot of paperwork mm-hmm. uh, in, the, in, the, in the shipping and receiving processes, mm-hmm. right? And so how do we capture that? Um, and how do we input that into business systems and then make that available to other roles? And so, you know, there, there, there's just so many applications, but also things like optimization like, how do you put cameras in the ceilings and not just look for defects, you know, at a pinpoint uh, cell, mm-hmm. but also, like, how is the overall process flowing? How mm-hmm. are we? optimizing the line. And mm-hmm. so I think there's a lot of rich capability, even with the evolution of camera right. vision. I, I
1: think you've you, you stated the cases, right? Yeah. So those are yeah. essentially the set of cases. Now imagine enhancing that with thermal detection, right? with acoustic detection, with vibration detection. Yeah. And now you, you're bringing in a convergence of image, thermal, acoustic, and vibration. And imagine the, the richness of a correlated data set that's looking at those four channels and establishing predictive and prescriptive, prescriptive maintenance. For certain manufacturing process, a downtime of 15 minutes could be millions of dollars. Yep. But if you can have really effective predictive and prescriptive maintenance structures, you have the ability to just preempt those challenges or, or reroute or, or do other things. And, and so that is the power of the whole image recognition ecosystem sure. in terms of its ability uh, to really, really improve. Uh, and again, the, the specificity of the AI models that come into play for those specific tasks is why you need AI experts. Yep. Where if you're looking at maybe applying DQN, um, sort of a, an algorithm into an image process, it's not gonna work. You need convolutional neural networks, which are specifically tasked for that function. So I think that is um, um, the, sort of the alignment from whoever our manufacturing partners partner with mm-hmm. in their AI journey, they've got to make sure that the, that expertise Uh, comes through the process and which brings me sort of to the next thought process is the AI journey is not a solo journey it is a tapestry of multiple partners that you bring to bear in order to be able to drive that value now that does not mean you do not as an organization build your own skill set I'm a big proponent that you've got to build because I think that internal skill set keeps everybody honest and I'll say that as someone who is uh, a buyer of AI technologies, right? So whenever a vendor comes to me and says, hey, we want to uh, sell you X, Y, and Z, this is AI-enabled, you, know, you want to be able to have an intelligent discourse and say, well, help me understand exactly how it's AI-enabled, mm-hmm. or it's not just some simple computational mathematics. And do I really need to apply AI here? What are the cost benefits? What's the risk? Um, what are my data egress challenges? Um, so you've got to have that internal skill set but it's not a solo journey. It yep. is a journey that requires you to align a broad spectrum of partners from infrastructure to, to training model partners, to, to you know, partners that help you establish quality assurance on those models, uh, to security partners, and so on and so forth.
0: Yeah, and, and, and when you think about even something as simple uh, and as feasible, as uh, camera vision. I mean that's a great example of what you're talking about. In order to make that possible you, you need a wide array of hardware. I mean you're talking about Selecting the right cameras, the right lighting, the right positioning at the point of use, and then you have to integrate that with your networking. You have to have the right level of GPU enabled right. yep. edge devices yep. to be able to run those inferencing models at the edge, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then you have to be able to design and fine tune and maintenance those models because mm-hmm. there's not what you just do when you first. Uh, implement and deploy the model. There will be variations. You're going to change your products. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to the, want to enhance your models. The over privacy life concerns, cycle.
1: right? Even the cameras, yes. the privacy concerns, the policies yes. that you build. Yeah. What, what are your policies as a manufacturer around that, that, mm-hmm. that capturing of those images and potentially identifying individuals? How do you want to do that? Are you within sort of the regulatory framework if you're an industry that's regulated? Um, and, and how do you potentially anonymize but at the same time extract value? Um, so those are, those are absolutely uh, the set of considerations um, that, that one needs to contend with.
0: Let's, let's talk a little bit more about supply chain because I think, you know, I'll give you an example. When I think about digital twins, because when we think about twins, digital twins have largely been talked about in the factory environment. Mm -hmm. Let's model our factory, let's model a platform, like a vehicle, so that way we can create a digital twin of our factory of a product, say just in the case of discrete manufacturing, and we can run through a whole set of simulations, Mm -hmm. and we can get real-time data as feedback into this. But, you know, I think one of the things that's really evolved over the years is supply chain twins, digital supply chain twins, Mm -hmm. which you alluded to earlier. And I think this is sort of an amazing opportunity because, you know, every manufacturer has a supply chain Mm -hmm. and can stand to significantly benefit. When we talked earlier about some of the drivers to adopt new technology, it isn't just about the workforce. It isn't just about uh, the cost pressures. It's also, I think, something that we've lived through, you know, post-pandemic, this idea of resiliency, Mm -hmm. right? And so when you combine all those together, supply chain twins, uh, uh, digital twins, is a great example Mm -hmm. of being able to combine Uh, a a rich set of data, Mm -hmm. right, because you're talking about everything from uh, inventory levels and product detail, uh, consumer demand, um, what your suppliers possess in their inventories, and then uh, transportation and logistics, so that you can, say, simulate some Mm -hmm. of today's pressures. Mm -hmm. I mean, you and I talk about uh, some of the roles of things like geopolitical pressures Mm -hmm. in in the market, right? What happens if there is a a, a regional-based event It could be a conflict, Mm -hmm. war, Uh, it could be a change in policy or regulation that shifts the way your organization has to, to think about its supply chain. How do you prepare for that? How resilient are
1: you? Yeah, so I think what you're describing is probably the nth degree of complexity, right? So you're looking at a distributed global supply chain, you're looking at potential geopolitical challenges or even uh, natural calamity Mm -hmm. challenges, Mm -hmm. right, that can potentially have an impact. And then how are you simulating those set of considerations and then making your overall supply chain uh, more rigid and reliable and, and sustainable through that process? Uh, I'll give you something even simpler. So, um, one of our customers um, was was looking at establishing, and and it, without going into exactly, and I'll probably give give away the industry. But it, there's an end uh, end hardware piece which is essentially a saw. Imagine, mm-hmm. let's say it's theoretically a lumber company, right? Mm-hmm. So there's there's a, a a saw, and a certain type of saw that cuts certain type of wood that cuts at a certain type of shape and size. Mm -hmm. Imagine taking that upstream to your end retailer. So whether it's, you know, one of the larger retailers out there that's selling a whole bunch of wood. Mm -hmm. How do you take that that sales transactional information, its seasonal seasonal cyclicality, Mm -hmm. its regional cyclicality, its natural calamity-based cyclicality, because people need wood, maybe there's, Mm -hmm. you know, They've been It'll be a uh, hurricane, hurricane or, or something. Yeah. And how do you apply that to your 30 mills, mm-hmm. sawmills downstream, and do that very quickly so you can align the right product for the right, right. market at the right, right time? That requires a level of data plane that traverses so many of these different ecosystems. Data plane all the way from uh, you know, that, that retail outlet that's selling all the way down to your manufacturing process. Yeah. And, and there, there you, do, you do not necessarily require artificial intelligence, it's more a, a baseline statistical computational models yep. that can help you address that. But that underpinning, the data plane, the ability to capture that information and align that is just a perfect example around you know, the overall digitization of, of manufacturing.
0: Yeah, that's a great example of, of aligning sales and operations at a whole nother level, right? <laughs> Which is something that's so challenging for many organizations Seeding because it's complex, right? right? And, and it's changing, you know, minute to minute, hour to hour, day to day, depending on the industry you're in. Let, let's talk about something that's uh, a kind of an interesting topic because I don't, I don't want to not talk about this, but it's not something we would typically think about in its application, maybe in manufacturing. Let's talk about synthetic data. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I, you know, I think it's kind of a fascinating subject, uh, and has a lot of applications in just about anything. I mean, it could have application in how you prep uh, for growth and test out, I don't know, data migrations into cloud IT systems for ERP for data you don't possess today mm-hmm. or at a scale you don't possess mm-hmm. today. Um, it could be used in R and D. It could mm-hmm. be used to augment uh how you actually train and develop models mm-hmm. i mean t- tell us a little bit about what synthetic data really is and what's so i i'll, I'll up. sort
1: of double click on synthetic data but i'll sort of do it within the context of a the data journey right mm-hmm. so for an organization to be able to effectively um, build out smart and intelligent systems based upon ai in general you you need a good set of data now what has changed over the course if you ask me this question about data and the data journey if you had this conversation seven years ago, you would have seen me be exceedingly rigid on this notion of data structuring. Right. That your data needs to be perfectly aligned, you've gotta tag it appropriately, you've gotta structure it the right way. And by the way, seven years ago, that may have been a precursor. Now. Now the, the data challenges or how data is orchestrated, it's more forgiving. Mm-hmm. You can have unstructured data and you can extract value right. out of unstructured data as well. But within the realm, the one area that is unavoidable is that if you do not have a diverse and representative data set, you will not be able to build meaningful mm-hmm. outcomes. Mm-hmm. And so those gaps are the gaps that need to be addressed. And there are multiple ways of addressing those data gaps. Uh, in some cases, It's a function of applications improperly being configured. Right. Where you have a baseline set of applications that can generate a lot of data, you're just not you haven't configured the apps the mm-hmm. right way, and that could be core infrastructure as, uh, as so well. So the idea
0: here is you're trying to prepare for a future state, right. you just don't have that data. You don't have that data. data. Right, right. So, so
1: now yeah. you go back and say, okay, my infrastructure, that's my PLC controllers, you know, they have the ability to generate this really rich data uh, fabric, and I just don't have it configured as mm-hmm. such. Mm-hmm. So going through that process will help you fill uh, some of your gaps. Then there will be core applications that you need to engineer and deliver and develop that will create that data. Mm -hmm. It's not so much about just switching the data uh, pipes on, it's now actually saying, hey, there's a fundamental gap. I've got to be able to capture this data, I've got to be able to create this data, and then drive that into into my overall data ecosystem. And the third area is where it's almost impossible Mm -hmm. to, to have either enough Quantity right. of that data or create that data. And now you're saying, okay, how do I uh, rag or how do I sort of bring in an additional set of data? And that's where the synthetic aspects of data comes in. Now that brings within it a whole set of other considerations you need to contend with. Is my data uh, appropriate? Does it have, is it being curated effectively? Are there any underlying ethical biases or underlying additional incremental biases? So that synthetic data set should not sort of become a data set that skews your results, it needs to be something that's robust. And that's again one of the areas that we focus in on is that whether it is any one of those three planes, your data set needs to comply with underlying ethics I mean, I'll give you a really, and I always give this. I, you know, I lecture at Columbia on, yeah. on, this, on this topic, uh, and it's been a while since I have, but I, I used to love sort of interacting with students and, and lecturing on, on this topic called AI. I've been doing that now, I think, seven, eight years. Um, and I always love to give this one example around this um, paper written by the researchers at Georgia Tech. Now, I'm not sure when I first read this paper, it had not gone through a peer review, um, but I believe by now it probably has gone through a peer review. But in the early years of autonomous vehicles, the autonomous vehicles um, uh, object detection systems had a 4% or somewhere close to that number greater likelihood of not recognizing people with darker skin tones as pedestrians. And, and, and so now all of a sudden the, the next question, why? Why? And it was not some underlying insidious purpose or or racial bias, but it was an underlying racial bias that came in through just poor data. (laughs) The data did not have enough people with darker skin tones be represented in that overall data set. So that skewed the output of that AI system. But those are some of the simple things. Now, they may seem simple in the early days of AI, but downstream they can impact you as an organization around legal liability challenges, obviously ethical challenges. Nobody wants to be in a press where you're saying, okay, my fundamental training models that make decisions on how I'm giving you loans or or making life or death decisions, or I'm giving you loans, it has some underlying racial bias. And that will open you up Sure. Uh, faster than you think to downstream uh, legal advice. So spending an inordinate amount of time on building your data pipelines, making sure that you've done enough due diligence yeah. on, on the rig of, the, of that data being uh, copacetic is, is an important yeah. uh, element.
0: Yeah, and I think synthetic data can have a nice augmentation role, as we kind of said. Yep. like Maybe yep. if you have gaps in your data, it's a great way to augment your da- get right. your data, right. depending on what 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 the application. But designing
1: you're the synthetic data structure is important because if you design it poorly, you're just reinforcing. the issue, yeah, same right? Issue.
0: Same issue. Yep, absolutely. But I, I think it's it's a fascinating thing, and I think it has a lot of power and opportunity. Uh, to help organizations. And, 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 and it may not be that you're training a model. It could just be that you're prepping and helping develop an application and you're trying to say, how do to load millions right. of records that don't exist? Right. And I don't right. want to use real right. data By the way, because they, we might have obligations, regulatory right. There law. are also a
1: lot of, like, for example, Kaggle and other uh, organizations and open source data sets that exist mm. that you can uh, as well leverage. So that may be the fourth aspect, you know, yeah. using some of these data sources that exist. Now, that does also create a downstream challenge around indemnification. Because if you're training your data set models on data that you do not necessarily own, where does the intellectual property right begin Mm -hmm. and end? Mm -hmm. And that is a a challenge that's going to get litigated, where we're going through that with ChatGPT and OpenAI, and you're likely to see that sort of uh, manifest in other uh, downstream legal uh, set of challenges and considerations. Uh, I have a certain view on that, don't necessarily need to share it right now, but but that would be another challenge that uh, one, or or a method that one can apply, which are these data sets that exist out there, but then with that comes those other considerations and challenges.
0: You know, we've talked a lot about the upside, the opportunity for AI application and manufacturing. We talked about some of the broad set of challenges uh, around uh, the journey that organizations might go on. Uh, as they approach AI or or some of the additional challenges that come about because we're manufacturers and manufacturers have unique challenges. Um, Let's talk a little bit about how Connections um, changing, evolving and innovating to support our customers.
1: So I think with respect to AI specifically, uh, this was a a bet that um, our board and our our leadership made many, many years ago. So I remember having these conversations with my boss, uh, Tim McGrath, uh, and then subsequently thereafter uh, with our board as well about the importance of, uh, I think in those days, it was mostly in the importance of data. Yeah. Um, so if you ask uh, what connections sort of personal journey is, um, it's in large measure driven by how do we become a data enabled business? And in, in large measure, we were looking internally more so than externally as well. So this journey is now almost a five plus year journey. Um, and, and so I think that that top down commitment around data and artificial intelligence is an important precursor to get the support you need in order to be able to become an effective supplier, in this case now with Connection, building out its Helix Center for Applied AI. Um, so I, I think that was a, a really important aspect um, to, to it. And, and within Connection, what we've done is, we've, we've built this skill set. Now, the only caveat that I'll throw is out there is that um, the resources that we have are, are difficult to acquire mm-hmm. difficult to retain, and so there 's often this this sizing constraint, so we are very, very particular at helix um, um, in terms of which customers and which use cases and which industries we, we uh, work with, uh, and we really uh, qualify opportunities quite effectively, but once we do that we, we bring right now we bring about seven, six or seven different elements um, around what it is that we deliver, one is the advisory function. Mm-hmm. Right, so we, we we build this really strong capacity and capability in advising our customers around their industries, around their needs, what are the AI formulations, do they make sense? Are your POCs making sense? And by the way, our customers come in a broad set of maturity levels as well. We've right. got really advanced customers, who who do not necessarily require advisory services. They're like they know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And they've actually built centers of AI for now many, many years. And so in their sort of ecosystem, the challenges are on the other end of the spectrum. They may be designing a foundational model, or they're really fine-tuning an existing foundational model around their data set. And so that requires a different level of sophistication. Um, then we've got data orchestration services. As I've said this repeatedly, um, that effective data strategy is your, your baseline for you to build an effective AI strategy right. or extract AI value. Um, then we build, uh, and something that Connection's historically known for, uh, is AI workload, uh, infrastructure design and optimization. You know, how do you build that infrastructure all the way from edge to cloud and everything in between. Yep,
0: and did you do it securely and you Do it effectively, securely, right. effectively, <clears throat> efficiently.
1: Um, there's often a cost component. You yep. know, AI propositions are not inexpensive. They require these really expensive uh, systems. So you really got, you have to look at designing your infrastructure in a way that's highly efficient and optimized. And
0: th- this is an important point. I mean, you're not just talking about, say, designing a model to uh, perform a particular task. You're talking about optimizing it on top of the resource. So I'm not even talking about model, by the way.
1: I'm talking about infrastructure. So I'm talking about that edge infrastructure. I'm talking about the networking uh, pipelines that enable that data to egress into some sort of a curation infrastructure or storage infrastructure that sits Mm on-prem. And then what's that portion of your data that you're willing to uh, Mm -hmm. put into the cloud Mm -hmm. where you might need to do a faster prototyping and things of that sort. That complexity of that infrastructure, designing it for specific AI workloads so your inference engines work optimally, they're constantly being updated, through train models uh, or new versions of trained models, so that, that building out that infrastructure. Now the part that you're talking about is model designing. Yeah. So now you're saying, okay, how do we make the decision which foundational model to use? How do we fine tune it? How do we p tune it? How do we align it with our data set? How do we address some of those data set issues sure. and, and you know, synthetic data and make our training model output better results for us? And that in itself is another uh, area. And there's a
0: life cycle to that, too. I mean, that's what we were talking about. It's not just the creation of it and optimization for an initial release. You're going to have to maintain and optimize over the life of it. Right.
1: And the the convergence point there is you've got to maintain your data pipelines. You can uh, maintain your what are called ML Ops, machine learning Ops. So if you build an operational structure for data Ops and ML Ops, how do they converge? And so there's this constant lifeline, rinse, repeat, improve, rinse, repeat, improve on your models. And they train and they get better and stronger. And that makes you more, more of an intelligent uh, organization some of these Mm -hmm. automated tasks Uh, the the fifth area is uh, application replatforming we call it kinetic bridging which is are your applications at the end of the day these are applications that are Mm -hmm. running on everything right so they're either going to ingest intelligent insights and make those application result result better uh, uh, return results that are uh, better or they're going to create data set that drive intelligent insight. So getting your applications to that point is a key component. And then the, the sixth area that we focus on is, is operational support, MLOps, uh, data ops support. So just providing overall support management to this ecosystem. Uh, those are the six areas that we, we bring to bear. Thank you. And oh, by the way, before I forget, we do that on the basis of a partner ecosystem. Right. Like I said, in the early stage of our conversation, this is not a solo journey.
0: Yeah, we we can't do it alone. We cannot do it alone. So we bring
1: partners like Intel, NVIDIA, Dell, HPE, Microsoft, AWS, uh, uh, Google. Uh, These are the partners that we bring, uh, that bring compelling technology stacks that give us the ability to address specific areas of this overall broader journey. Yeah,
0: it's a fascinating conversation. And like we said, it's it's going to evolve and change very quickly. Um, who knows, right? It's not a linear uh, progression like we talked about, so this could dramatically change in six months or a year from now. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of opportunity. There are certainly feasible use cases in the application of AI in manufacturing today, and there's many different ways that manufacturers can benefit. We've only had an opportunity to talk about a very small sampling of the use cases uh, that are available and the ways that manufacturers are adopting artificial intelligence. But I wanna leave our our, uh, viewers uh, with one thought. If If you're interested in learning more about these manufacturing use cases, if you're interested in learning more about uh, um, the uh, life cycle and the methodology that Connection and the Helix uh, Center of Applied uh, AI has around um, our approach to uh, artificial intelligence. Um, if you're an existing customer, you can feel free to reach out to your account executive, or if you don't have an existing account executive, you can reach out to uh, send an email to AI at connection.com. I'm Ryan Spurr, along with Jamal Khan, and I want to thank all of our viewers for taking the time to join us today in the exploration and the power of AI in manufacturing. Thank you.